Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of May 2020 and this is episode 159. On today's podcast, I speak to Michael Nugent about his recent book on the 2nd Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers at the 1915 Battle of Vestiver. This is called It Was an Awful Sunday and has been published by Ravelli Press. I spoke to Michael from his home in Northern Ireland. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, thanks very much, Tom. It's, uh, it is great to be back. I've always had an interest in, in history and, and military history in particular. It was only when I retired after 30 years in public service that I was able to devote uh, quality time to, to research. And this period coincided with the run-up to the centenary of the, of the beginning of the Great War. So I was able to embrace all aspects of the centenary. Events, the release of records, new publications, and the heightened public interest in, in uh, discovering the experiences of, of family members. So we're going to talk about the 2nd Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers at Festival. Before we get into the action, can you explain about your personal interest in this unit? And my supplementary question is, why is Enniskillen spelt with an E and the Enniskillen Fusilier spelt with an I? Uh, I don't know the <laughs> short answer to that one. <laughs> I, I know the, the history, there's, there's, there were uh, two regiments raised at uh, Enniskillen back in, in 1689. It may stem from that, uh, that they were known as, as Enniskillens. I, I, I can't definitively say, I have to say, Tom. Oh, okay. So um, within the Skillings, um, I've noticed in the Skillings in general, I had actually two great uncles who, who fought and died with the Skillings in, in the Great War. Um, Robert, who's the, the eldest, was a professional soldier. He enlisted in 1909 and served with the 1st Battalion. He well-traveled. He was in China. He was in India. Uh, he landed Gallipoli with them on the 25th of April 1915, uh, moved with the battalion to France, was wounded at the Somme in July 16. And again, fatally wounded at Carnoy on, uh, on the Somme in January 1917 and died of his wounds. He's, he's actually buried at Saint-Sauveur at Rouen. But the interest and in, in why I've, I've written this book, his younger brother James, who, who my father was named after, he was called up as a reservist and joined the 2nd Battalion in France on the 19th of December 1914. He was killed in action aged 17 at the Battle of Festibert on, well, the night of the 15th, going into the 16th of, of May 1915. And this, this began my interest in the battle. And, and when I started carrying out my research beyond the, the personal details of my great uncle, I found that very little had actually been written about the battle. So I, I decided to tell the story of the Inniskillings, or from the Inniskillings' perspective. Can you tell us about the 2nd Battalion in the Inniskillings um, in its immediate pre-war days and what um, type of unit it was and what type of man was forming its ranks in 1914 and 1915. Yeah, well, the 2nd and the were a regular army battalion and, and keeping with the, the custom of the, the British Army at that time, one battalion served at home whilst another was an, was an Empire service. Uh, the 2nd Battalion uh, had been the garrison battalion at Dover Castle and, and Fort Burgoyne uh, guarding the, the port of Dover since September 1913. Uh, they were mobilised for war on the afternoon of the 3rd of August 1914 and they embarked uh, for France on the 23rd of August. Uh, being involved in the Battle of Lacato, so three days after arriving they were, they were in action uh, and then they were involved in the, in the first the retreat uh, and uh, the first Battle of Ypres 
thereafter. By 1915, through involvement in those early engagements, uh, the battalion comprised a mixture of professional soldiers, some of whom had seen action in the South African Wars, and reservists called up for the duration of the war. Uh, the majority of the officers at that time were, were regular army officers. And the reservists were people who'd done service with the colours but had been had left for whatever reason but were on a sort of obviously a list to be called up in time of in time of war. Yes, some of those, but also people like my great uncle who had been who had joined the reserve um, and were basically part time soldiers like the TA, uh, where they where they did a couple of days, um, or some weekends, and, and then a summer camp. Uh, they would have done that, so they they maybe hadn't seen any uh, active service at all. But certainly, yes, there were reservists who had completed their time and then were recalled to the battalion. Now, turning to the Battle of Festival, could you give us an overview of the battle, its background, objectives, its sort of terrain conditions, and where exactly it is in France? The Commander-in-Chief, Field Marshal Sir John French, uh, he was under immense pressure from the French to carry out offensive actions to drive the, the Germans back. And, and Britain was very much a junior partner in the alliance, and, and the French wanted them to take a more proactive role to relieve some of the pressure from them. Personally, Sir John French was keen to assist to maintain and enhance an offensive spirit, although he was acutely, acutely aware of the shortages of equipment and supplies, particularly shells. And in all honesty, the troops were glad to be moving as well, as they had spent a cold and wet winter in a low-lying part of the country where they were overlooked by the Germans. Water table was between 12 to 18 inches below ground, so trenches could not be dug and breastworks had to be built up instead. And in my research, I came across many instances of Inniskillings being hospitalised with frostbite. But there were three battles in this part of France in the spring of 1915. Neuve-Chapelle uh, from the 10th to the 12th of March, Ober's Ridge on the 9th of May, and Festivere from the 15th to the 27th of May. And the area we're talking about is around four miles from Béthune in northern France. And it came as a great surprise to me when I started my research that all three battles were fought in an area of three and a half miles. And the Festivere was fought over the exact same ground as Ober's Ridge was the week before. So the, the plan of the battle was to seize Ober's Ridge and break the enemy line north of the Lubasse Canal. And this would give the British a commanding view over the low-lying ground beyond the ridge and enable them to plan further advances. Ober's Ridge sounds grand. It was only 70 feet high. But in the flat plains, holding this feature gave it distinct advantage. It was also hoped that a successful advance by the British would force the Germans to withdraw resources from Vimy, where they were facing the French and ease the next French offensive. Well, with Neuf Chapelle wasn't particularly successful, Orbers Ridge, as we know, was a bit of a one-day disaster. Why are the British trying again for a third time in the same place? Again, the pressure was on to assist the French, but uh, as I mentioned in, in, in answer to, to one of the next questions, they came up with some innovative ideas that they thought, well, we did. We tried Dover's Ridge and it was a complete and utter disaster. Uh, I think about 12,600 casualties and they didn't advance a yard. So they tried again a week later, but they tried some innovation. Um, and unfortunately, the innovation, as you would see, uh, talk about the innovation didn't work either. So if we go right down onto the tactical line and look at the role of the second and the skillings, what was their uh, particular function in the battle and, ha- and whereabouts did they fit in the order of, a- of attack? Okay, the battle initially involved uh, the British 2nd Division and having the attached brigade of, of the Indian Merit Division. And they were to carry out a night attack. So this, that's part of the innovation. This, this is the first night attack 
in the war. They tried various other things, like Ober's Ridge, for example, they went in at uh, 25 to 6 in the morning. Um, but this was a night attack to be carried out in darkness. Uh, the plan was that the 2nd Division would, would make an advance and then consolidate their positions. And then the next morning, the 2nd, accompanied by the 7th Divisions, would carry out a pincer attack, uh, meeting an agreed objective and attaining hopefully an advance of, of a thousand yards. So there's a bit of innovation there, but again, very much trial and error. Uh, this is trench warfare. They weren't, this is new to, to all the commanders, so they were trying various things to see if they worked. Unfortunately, they cost countless lives, cost thousands of lives, but there was nothing else they could do. They had, they had to try something. Uh, the Inniskillings were, were one of the battalions of the 5th Infantry Brigade of the 2nd Division, and they were chosen to, to lead the advance. And the objective for the battalion was to advance and seize the German first and second lines, and, and in reality, to drive the Germans back around 400 yards. So essentially, we're, we're looking at a terrain which is made up of um, walls of sandbags as opposed to trenches, because obviously it's May. Is it still reasonably wet at this time of year? Uh, it, it was, it, uh, and there had been some unseasonable um, rainfall as well, but it, it it had dried out uh, sufficiently that, that they thought that the attack should go ahead on the, on the night of the 15th. So what actually happens during during the attack? Okay, the Inniskillings advanced either side of a path known as, as the Cinder Track. A Company were on the left, D Company were on the right, uh, and, and B and C Companies followed in support. Now, if we go back to Bomber's Ridge, the 2nd Royal Munster Fusiliers had advanced from exactly the same position a week before, and at Obers Ridge, and 130 of their dead were lying in no man's land. So the Inniskillings had to uh, advance, and the, the advance was to be carried out with fixed bayonets in silence. That, that, was, the, that was the plan. So they, they had to advance uh, through the, the dead monsters lying there. However, in another innovative idea, it was decided to have a, a deception plan uh, by those planning the battle. Units not involved and further up the line on the left would have identified five-minute periods throughout the evening of 15th of May, whereby they would open fire with all their weapons. So for five minutes, they would just open fire with all they had on the German lines and then stop. And this, this was carried out uh, nearly half a dozen times between 6 and 11 p.m. And this was to sow confusion in the minds of the Germans as to what was, was happening. However, it backfired spectacularly because it merely confirmed the Germans and the attack was, was imminent. As they advanced, both attack companies came under heavy and sustained machine gun fire. No progress was made. And this is very interesting. The cinder track is still there. I've been on it. No progress was made to the left of the cinder track at all until 1918, which is quite amazing. Either by the Skillings or by to the left of the Skillings with the second Woosters, they, they weren't able to advance at all. D Company, who were on the right of the cinder track, managed to seize and hold the German first and second lines. So they achieved the objectives. And they received support from the 2nd Battalion, the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry, and consolidated what's under heavy shell fire. So, what happened once they had got into the German lines? Well, as I say, A Company managed to reach the German lines, but were not able to, to breach them. D, D Company were able to get there, they were able to consolidate. So, basically, after uh, this initial part of the Battle of Festival, when the, when the 7th Division attack went in at, at uh, dawn the next morning, uh, the cinder track sort of became uh, a pivot of the front line, uh, because on the left-hand side it didn't move at all. It did eventually move on the right, and the line moved up uh, as the British advance continued. So what happens over the rest of the course of the battle? For the Inniskillings, the Inniskillings are in the battle for, for two days. Um, they are finally re relieved on the evening of the 17th. Uh, but basically, 
they are recovering uh, some of their wounded A and, and uh, B and C companies. D company obviously are, are uh, well trying to consolidating their advance uh, along with the auction box. And when they when they're relieved, uh, basically they're shelled the whole way the whole way back to to uh, when they get the the billets uh, behind the front line. And what was the level of casualties that the second uh, battalion actually sustained? And in a word, casualties were horrendous. Uh, in the attack, the battalion sustained six hundred and forty nine casualties, nearly two thirds of their strength. Of these, two hundred and sixty four were killed, uh, and of those, only twenty six have a known grave. Uh, with the remainder being commemorated on the Latoure Memorial, which is about about two miles down the road from the the scene of the battle, and that's indicative of, of the the type of warfare that was on. It was just too dangerous to go out and and recover bodies. I have I've researched each of the fatalities and I've identified eighty one men from A Company, including including my great uncle who were killed. Now out of a company that's well over half uh, operational strength, and that's the ones I've identified. There are others. Some from this company managed to reach the German front line, but the company itself was basically annihilated. I have I have identified the the field that my my great uncle and in fact many many of his his uh, colleagues and and beyond that for the next three years many more men were were killed in this in this same field uh, to the left of the cinder track and in fact on my visit there last year I have three sharpnel balls sitting on my desk in front of me that I picked up from that uh, field, as well as uh, I have uh, some cartridge cases, three and three cartridge cases, and um, parts of a rum jar and some shrapnel all sitting on my desk in front of me from that field. And what exactly killed people in that field? Because obviously at the Albers Ridge, certainly when my grandfather's unit was involved in Kensington's, they actually found a lot of being shot by machine gun bullets rather than artillery. Was that the case at Festival? Very much so. Uh, the, the Germans, they had a time uh, during the winter of 1914-15 to fortify this area. And what, the, what they did was they built a machine gun position large enough for, for a machine gun team into the parapet around every 20 yards or so. These are steel boxes were built into the parapet, covered over by uh, earth, and they were invisible from the air. They, they couldn't be seen. And because the, the British didn't have sufficient uh, heavy howitzer ammunition, they weren't able to deal with these. So the same problems that uh, existed at Ober's Ridge had not been resolved before Festa Bear. So um, history basically just repeated itself uh, a week later. So they, they, the Germans, you know, as they have done, or as they did throughout many of the battles, their defensive um, fortifications were, were very impressive. The machine guns that they had built into the parapets all had interlocking fields of fire uh, and they were preset. So whenever bombardment ceased and they knew the British were coming, basically all they had to do was press a button. And it leads us to the question, well, who was to blame for this um, debacle? I mean, certainly no Chappelle had appeared to achieve something. Albers Ridge definitely failed. And Festa Bear was not much much more successful. Who would you blame for this uh, this chaos? I thought a bit about this. There's a number of reasons for the failure of the attack. And I don't think the generals could be held fully accountable as, as you're blaming them from, for trying something new. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the tactics that times they say involve trial and error to find a, a formula that worked, although from the, from the abortive attack of the 9th of May, it was known that the Germans had well-conceived machine gun positions. And the preliminary bombardment, although it lasted 36 hours, whereas, you know, Overs Ridge, the bombardment lasted 35 minutes. 
the bombardment lasted 36 hours, but it was intermittent. It wasn't uh, constant. And that was due to the shortage of shells, which the British High Command knew they had a shortage of shells. There were a lack of howitzers need to deal with machine gun emplacements. And many of the, the four and a half inch shells were faulty and failed to explode. And I have, I have records and in my book, I mentioned the uh, Germans facing the Inniskillings commented on the fact that a lot of the British shells uh, were uh, faulty. So without dealing with the machine guns, the attack was bound to fail. No matter what happened, uh, it was bound to fail if machine guns weren't dealt with. But communication was also an issue. Because once, once an attack began, it was really guesswork as to what was, was happening. Uh, nobody really knew, especially at night. Nobody knew what was going on. So runners had to be relied on. And it was often a lottery whether or not the runner got through. So the commanders behind the lines didn't really know exactly how things were, were progressing. So they couldn't make a judgment as to how to progress further from that in a, in a coherent manner anyway. So a mixture of, of uh, events and, and circumstances and, and certainly, you know, generals have to share some of the blame for it as well. But again, as I say, it's, it's trial and error. These things had to be tried so that future battles were able to be fought in a different way. In fairness, you know, the generals did try new things at Neuve-Chapelle. They tried to concentrate the artillery barrage at Orbers Ridge. They tried mining, uh, putting mines under the, the German line. So they were innovating. It wasn't just, you know, sort of a Blackadder-esque, you know, let's try it for the 15th time and surprise the Germans by our persistence. No, no, definitely not. Uh, and, and it's horrendous when you look at the casualties, but you can't really fault them for, for trying something new, I think. Is there actually anything left of the battlefield? It's one of my favourite places to go um, when I when I do my Western Front visits, and it's my, one of my favourite places because it is relatively untouched. There's no, um, it's not like a psalm where everything's signposted. You know, go here and look at this. It, it's it's a farmer's field. In fact, it's two farmer's fields, uh, and the cinder track is still there. And I and I identified the the, the cinder track from uh, maps of the time and and walked up and down and and. Uh, eventually find it and uh, I, I like to go in March the fields are just ploughed and every year as, as you know uh, material comes to the surface and that's why I'm still picking up shrapnel balls and, and uh, you know cartridge cases there's bits of boots lying about come to the surface bits of bone you can still see that because there's literally thousands of men uh, in those two fields so uh, it's it's yeah it's it's between the, the uh, village of Neuve Chapelle, uh, you know, the roundabout where the Indian Memorial is, uh, you know, uh, between that and the Latoury Memorial on the left hand side. Um, very flat ground. Um, but, but you know, I, I've spoken to the farmers and that they, they don't mind people coming there. Um, and indeed, there are uh, a lot of small crosses uh, taped and, and, and tied to some of the, the posts. Just, just where actually where the German front line was. And finally, where can people get the book from? Okay, the book's published by Rivali Press. Uh, it's available from them. It's also, uh, I've checked, it's available, available on Amazon at the minute. I think it's uh, £12.99. Uh, if anybody wants to contact me on my website, www.researchireland.com or on, on Facebook at www.researchireland, I'd be happy to sign a copy for them. Uh, and as you'll see, uh, if anyone wants to check the website, uh, I keep a journal where I publish articles on, on uh, uh, pieces of research I've been engaged in, and, and they also provide a research service if anybody's uh, looking to find out about their relatives. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. 
Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.